2022 Treasure Island Development Authority Sustainability Committee meeting. Due to the COVID-19 health emergency, board members are participating in this meeting remotely via video conference, and they are participating in the same extent as if they were physically present. Public comment will be available for each item on the agenda. For members of the public who wish to make public comment, the phone number to use is 415-655-0001. The access code is 2494-449-9637. Then press pound and press pound again. You may address the board once per agenda item for up to two minutes. Item number one, call to order. Director Sen? Here. Director Richardson? Here. And Director Dunlop? Um, here. Okay, we do have a quorum. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, our, our chair of the committee, um, Ike Kwan, actually um, has resigned from the title board because he's been called to other duties in the city by the mayor. Um, so until he, um, we um, uh, appoint another committee chair, um, I will run the meeting today. Um, and it's a great meeting. We've got um, all certainly my favorite topics and, and other commissioners' favorite topics as well, uh, the affordable housing, biodiversity, sea level rise. So we're really looking forward to um, hearing all the presenters today. So we will open with general public comment. Commissioner, just, uh, just wanted to uh, our own ad hoc on a official member, uh, Supervisor Mahaney, is uh, now going to the assembly. Congratulations, uh, Supervisor Haney. Uh, new beginning for you. We are going to miss you on this committee. Okay, thank you for that, Linda. Um, and we will go ahead with um, any public comment. This item number two is general public comment. And any members of the public, please dial star three to be added to be the queue to speak. and seeing no public comment. Okay, next item, please. Item number three, consent agenda, approving the minutes of the October 21st, 2021 Sustainability Committee meeting. So moved. Do I have a second, Mark? Uh, second, am I voting on this um, committee? No, um, He's the votes will need to come from. Okay, then I will second it because we're then the only two official members of the committee. Mark is participating in his role as director of TIDA. Okay. And I'll take a roll call. Director Sun. Aye. Director Richardson. Aye. There are two ayes. Okay, the ayes have it. Next item, please. Item number four. 2021 Biodiversity Survey of the YBI presentation by California Academy of Sciences. Uh, I'm sorry, Kate. On my agenda, there was an update from Mercy Housing. Mercy. Is that wrong? Mercy. Uh, that Mercy. is, I'm sorry, are you uh, looking at the online agenda? Yes, yes I am. Yes. That revised. <laughs> sorry, there's a lot of background noise. Um, that it says Mercy. So we may have Sorry, to go with that. A lot of background noise right now. Um, yes, that is that has been updated. The agenda that was sent out does not have Mercy. The legacy household item is item six. Okay. So, so item four the, is the biodiversity survey by Academy of Sciences. Okay, Kate. Um, so the online agenda 
is not the correct agenda for today. And you so refresh it, it should be it should be correct now. It, what what I, I I'm I'm trying to pull it up right now, but what that may be is the agenda from the last meeting of the infrastructure and transportation committee. Um, but yeah, we did not have um, mercy on today's agenda. Okay, um, that's fine. Then let's go ahead with the um, next, uh, the Academy. Is it the Academy of Sciences and the biodiversity report? Um, let's go ahead with that. Thank you. Okay, shall I uh, give my brief comments? Thanks yeah. everybody. Could introduce introduce the item. Go oh, ahead, yeah. Peter. Go ahead, Peter. Okay. Um, so really excited to uh, to be here today. Um, not only because I love coming to Tida board meetings of any manifestation, um, which I've presented many times, and then, and then for those of you who don't know me, I'm Peter Brasto and work for the Department of Environment and have been supporting Tida for quite a few years now as an ecologist and um, love working with Peter. The two Peters are love getting out and about together and working with all of our colleagues, some of whom are here today. Um, and so wonderfully over the last few years, Tida has um, committed and invested in, in addition to the on the ground management that, that we're doing now, um, and of course, construction monitoring that we've been doing for years uh, through an ecology lens. Also um, committed to doing actual ecological monitoring. So we've had folks do, looking at butterflies and birds and mammals. Um, and then as part of that work, um, Tida contracted or actually did an interdepartmental work order with the Academy of Sciences uh, to do marine monitoring, surveying and monitoring. So of the of the actual marine environment all the way around the island. Um, and so uh, the Academy did great work um, and I'll let uh, Rebecca and Allison introduce themselves. Um, but we're really excited to hear them give a summary of their findings. Their report is really impressive. Uh, Peter and I were just, uh, you know, enthralled with it and really, really interesting things came out of this. So you're going to hear about it today. Uh, so Thanks for coming, Academy of Sciences. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Um, does someone need to give me the ability to share my screen again? <laughs> right now, that button is grayed out for me. Ah, there we go. <laughs> All right. Can everyone see that? Yes. Great. Um, yeah, so uh, I'll introduce myself and my co-director, uh, Dr. Rebecca Johnson. Um, we run the Center for Biodiversity and Community Science at the California Academy of Sciences, but we also both happen to be marine biologists, um, and we do a lot of intertidal uh, community science work, and so we were really excited um, when the Peters asked us if we'd be interested in doing an intertidal uh, survey around Yerba Buena Island. Um, and so we, like uh, Peter said, we have um, sent the report to them. We can't cover everything in the report in our short time today. Um, and so we definitely recommend checking out the report for all of the information um, that we included in there. But um, 
on a high level, kind of the study objectives that uh, we set out uh, to accomplish with this was to uh, survey the biodiversity of the Yerba Buena Island intertidal areas, um, primarily to develop a species list. Um, to do the same uh, for the Treasure Island Marina fowling community, um, being in Clipper Cove, the uh, marina definitely can influence some of the things that you would see, um, especially on the Clipper Cove side of your Rowena Island. Um, we wanted to understand which intertidal habitats uh, seem to harbor the most native diversity on Yerba Buena Island. Uh, we uh, wanted to survey for eelgrass along the southern edge of Clipper Cove, um, which eventually got exp expanded beyond Clipper Cove as well, which we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, and then based on other studies, we wanted to situate the Yerba Buena Island intertidal kind of in the whole context context of San Francisco Bay. Like, how does it compare to San Francisco Bay as a whole? Um, and like I said, we're not going to be able to cover all of this here, um, but it is all in our report. Um, so in our attempt to kind of study a diversity of intertidal areas um, around Yerba Buena Island um, and to basically reach as much as we could, these were our general kind of uh, survey sites. Uh, we basically surveyed the entirety of Clipper Cove. We kind of broke it into the, the sandy part of Clipper Cove and the more rocky side of Clipper Cove. Um, we went around in uh, the tor Torpedo Storehouse area, the Torpedo House area. Um, on the western side of Yerba Buena Island, we uh, did some surveys in these two coves that we just teamed or turned to the Northwest Cove and the Southwest Cove. Um, and then, like we said, we also did some um, surveys of the fowling community um, under the Treasure Island Marina docks. For the eelgrass surveys, um, we were initially just going to be surveying within Clipper Cove um, for eelgrass, um, and we ended up expanding out also to the eastern side of uh, Treasure Island uh, to survey that eelgrass bed as well. So um, those are our general survey sites. I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca to talk about how we actually conducted the surveys. Thanks so much, Allison. So, um, the intertidal areas, these are the areas around, along the shore of Yerba Buena Island that are exposed when the tide is low and covered up with water when the tide is high. So all of our surveys were conducted at low tides, um, usually by foot, right? So we would walk along the beaches, like this is Clipper Cove. You can see the tide is low. You can see all the seaweed or the algae and eelgrass. Um, this is eelgrass that's washed up and mostly other algae that is you can see on the beach. This is at a low time when the tide is low. And this tide is low enough that you could walk all the way around underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. And so we would go out and survey and look for as many um, invertebrates. These are mostly animals without backbones um, and seaweeds and evidence of other animals like if fish have washed up or shells just to get a really good picture of what species are found along this stretch. Um, in areas like this, you can see it's really rocky. This is under the Bay Bridge at the Torpedo Storehouse. There are lots of rocky, there's a rocky cobble and riprap. And so we would also turn over rocks to look for things that are using this area as habitat and look underneath. There of course are some areas of Yerba Buena Island, those coves on the Western side of the island that Allison pointed out that are only accessible by boat. So we worked closely with SF Boat Support who are amazing partners to get us out to these really incredible sites, these rocky um, cobbled beaches on the west side of the island where we would just scour the area to look for as many um, species as we possibly could. Um, in the marina, the, um, the fouling 
organisms. These are animals and seaweeds that attach themselves to the bottom of the boats or floats or docks. And so you can see here on this picture on the right, you can see Allison leaning over the dock, looking underneath, taking pictures of all of the things that are living um, underneath the dock. Um, and then for our eelgrass surveys, we worked with two um, eelgrass experts. You can see them here, Kate, Katie and Grace. Um, and they would walk when the tide was low with really big waders and walk way far out um, into the water, scooting their feet along the bottom of the sea floor or the bay floor, um, looking for the roots of eelgrass. The eelgrass is a true plant. It's just like a grass. So it has roots just like the grass that you would see in a lawn. And so they would be scooting along, looking for visual evidence and then other evidence of eelgrass. And then we also used <clears throat> work with our partner, um, David McGuire, um, to use a mini remote operated vehicle, right? So this is a little kind of underwater drone <laughs> that can go through the water and record video. And we also use this to look for eelgrass and to document the species that are living in and around eelgrass beds from a boat. That was also from a boat. Um, and as Allison mentioned, um, we run the community science department here at the academy where we work with um, volunteers to gather data um, on an app called iNaturalist. And we also use this app. So this is a way for us to record our observations of all of the plants and animals and seaweeds that we see. So we looked at all of the observations that have been made on Yerba Buena and Treasure Island by us and also by people visiting and using the app. And so people who are interested in nature or want to learn about nature around them can use this app to take pictures and make species occurrence records um, just on their own. And so anything that anyone made would be included in that, that data set or that picture I just showed you. But we've worked together for the past um, five years or six years with Peter Brasso and Peter Somerville um, and lots and lots of community members to hold bioblitzes, which are events where the community is invited to come to Treasure Island and Yerba Buena Island and to work together to look for and document as many species as we can. And we actually just held one a few weeks ago. Um, but over the years that we've held these events, you know, collectively, we've had over 100 people out on the island um, taking pictures of nature and sharing them. And we've made over a thousand observations of close to 600 species. And so these aren't all marine species that are included in this picture, but we looked and searched for all of the intertidal and marine species that had been collected by us and by the community. All right, so Allison told you about the study sites. And once we kind of looked at all of our data together, we divided those sites into some specific regions and we'll use these regions to tell you about our results. So these regions are Clipper Cove and Eastern Yerba Buena Island. So this is Clipper Cove all the way underneath the Bay Bridge, underneath to the Torpedo House. Western Yerba Buena Island, these are the areas that are accessible by mostly by boat now. Um, the Treasure Island Marina, and then the Eastern Treasure Island Eelgrass and Subtitle. Um, so we'll talk about what we found, and Allison, I'll turn it over to Allison to talk about what we found in these areas. Yeah. Um, yeah, so overall, we documented 198 species throughout these four regions um, through our surveys and then also through, like Rebecca said, what other people had also documented through iNaturalist. Um, kind of from 
most species to least. We found 115 species over on Western Yerba Island in the intertidal, um, 108 species in the intertidal, um, and also kind of the subtidal regions of Clipper Cove and uh, the Torpedo Storehouse area. 42 species where we documented um, underneath uh, the Treasure Island Marina and the docks. Um, and then 15 species over in the Eastern Treasure Island eelgrass area. And because that area in particular was only um, really through leaning over the boat and driving our little drone, um, that area in particular is not really a comprehensive biodiversity survey. You'd probably want scuba gear or snorkel gear to really get a comprehensive survey of the subtitle of Eastern Treasure Island. Um, so interestingly, looking across these four regions, um, uh, we were interested to see, you know, what is unique to these regions and what species do these places have in common. So um, the three biggest overlaps in terms of species um, were Western Yerba Buena Island with Eastern Yerba Buena Island and Clipper Cove. They had 50 species and 50 species in common were uh, found throughout those two regions. Um, Clipper Cove and the Treasure Island Marina um, had, had 18 species in common, and then Western Yerbuena Island and the marina had 14 species in common. Uh, we actually only found, there was only one species that was found in all four regions, um, and that is uh, an introduced species of uh, tunicate called the chain tunicate, uh, Botryloides violaceus, and there's a little photo of that um, there in that slide. Uh, focusing now, uh, particularly on the Yerba Buena Island intertidal um, and Clipper Cove region, um, looking just kind of at Yerba Buena Island itself in and around Yerba Buena Island, there were 173 species that we documented uh, in the intertidal and in Clipper Cove um, for Yerba Buena Island. Um, of those 173 species, interestingly, uh, 96 of those species had actually not previously been recorded in or around Yerba Buena Island, and that's um, looking through uh, like collections records, so available collections records, uh, like museum collections and things like that, as well as looking at iNaturalist records. Um, it's not that surprising that we found so many um, like newly recorded uh, uh, species for Yerba Buena Island just because it's generally kind of understudied as a whole. So we weren't that surprised that we were finding so many new records for Yerba Buena Island uh, for the intertidal, especially the intertidal being pretty um, un un understudied. Um, and looking specifically kind of at that, the Clipper Cove and Eastern side of Yerba Buena Island, um, we found 188, spe 108 species in that region, including um, 58 that were only found in that region. So when we think about kind of what's unique to that area, we had 58 species that we only found there. Um, you know, so if we think about Clipper Cove and Eastern Yerba Buena Island, it is really sheltered. And the intertidal community there is very similar to what you might find at other kind of inner bay intertidal sites. Um, you know, so if you're going to travel to the East Bay or kind of up into the North Bay or South Bay, um, and what you find there are kind of species that don't tolerate a lot of wave exposure. So they like that calm water. Um, and interestingly, this is kind of some highlights from what we found there, the ROV surveys of Clipper Cove um, turned up some of the most interesting species that we found in that region, um, including uh, slender sea pens that were growing in Clipper Cove, which was pretty amazing. This was the first, they've been documented around Treasure Island, but this was actually the first record of them in Clipper Cove itself. Um, and sea pens are their type of octocoral, if you're not familiar with them, um, and they can live to over a hundred years. So it was exciting to find them. Um, we also found uh, white burrowing anemones um, in Clipper Cove, and they've actually only been documented two other times in San Francisco Bay, but they're um, generally just understudied as a whole. 
looking at uh, Western Yerba Island. Um, so this is where we found 115 species on Western Yerba Island, um, and there were 65 species that were only found on Western Yerba Island. Um, it's not that surprising either. Western Yerba Island is almost directly across from the Golden Gate. Um, and so the intertidal community there very much reflects like this open ocean influence. You can see in this photo, like we're actually standing in an area that has mussel beds, like the same mussels that you would find out on the open coast of California. And so these are species that are really adapted to having more wave, you know, more wave action um, in their habitat. Um, really excitingly, we actually found seven species that have never before been documented in the entirety of San Francisco Bay. So this is again, looking at historic collection records as well as iNaturalist records. So we were really excited to find seven species that have never been found anywhere else in San Francisco Bay. Um, and we think that Yerba Buena Island is probably a hot spot for these new species. Um, one, because it is really inaccessible. And so again, it's understudied. There haven't been a lot of studies that have happened along Western Yerba Buena Island. Um, and the fact that it, it has kind of a huge expanse that does face the, the opening of the Golden Gate, uh, making it kind of a pretty unique site within San Francisco Bay. So really quickly, those seven new species um, that we found, new records for the entirety of San Francisco Bay um, are the Esmark's Brittle Star, um, which is that kind of those long-armed type of sea stars out there. This really beautiful chitin um, called a flame-lined chitin. Um, this uh, polychaete worm that builds a tube that has kind of a fringe along the top of it. And so its common name is the fringe hood spaghetti worm. Uh, there's a snail that we found called the glorious top snail that produces these really beautiful shells. Um, we were really excited to find them on Western Yerba Buena Island. Uh, this porcelain crab called the chocolate porcelain crab. Interestingly, this is a relative, relatively newly described species that was split from another species. So there is the possibility that it actually has been documented in San Francisco Bay before and they're in, sitting in a jar in a collection somewhere and someone just hasn't gone through to see if it's the old species or the new species yet. Um, but we found this on Western Yerba Buena Island. Uh, the onyx slipper snail has been, has been documented in San Francisco Bay before, but only its shell. So we were able to document the first live record of an onyx slipper snail on Western Yerba Buena Island for San Francisco Bay. And then interestingly, the sponge right here, which we can only identify to family, the Rasp Raspialidae family, this is actually um, potentially a newly described species. Tom Lee Turner, who's a professor at UC Santa Barbara, actually wrote us and said, hey, I think the species that you found on Yerba Buena Island is this new species that I'm describing. And so I wanna include um, Yerba Buena Island potentially as a locality for this, for this newly described species um, that we found there, which is exciting. Um, interestingly, um, when we were kind of doing our research for this, we wanted to see as we were researching, you know, what species have been found on Yerba Buena Island before, um, there was a 2009 study that was done by Applied Marine Sciences. They did uh, intertidal surveys, kind of rapid surveys around Treasure Island and then at nine sites of Yerba Island. Those nine sites they did all in one day, so they were very rapid, <laughs> a very rapid survey. Um, but we wanted to see, um, they were doing kind of transect surveys, so they can't be uh, compared directly, but we were interested to see what species they were documenting just to see if there were any species that they picked up that we did not. Um, and the two that really caught our eye were the ochre star, Pisaster ochraceus, and the eastern oyster drill. Um, the Pisaster ochraceus, you know, between that 2009 study and our, and our study, 
Um, sea star wasting disease happened in 2013 and 2014, and Pisaster ocraceus was one of the most hardest hit species. Um, on the open coast of California, they suffered about 81% mortality, but in San Francisco Bay at Alcatraz and Point Bonita, which were the two places that were studied, they actually suffered 99% mortality. Um, so we're guessing that the reason that we didn't pick them up in our study is that they, the ones that were found in 2009 and before then um, probably were uh, died off in sea star wasting disease and just haven't recovered since then. Um, the Eastern oyster drill is an interesting one because this is actually a pretty invasive species in San Francisco Bay. It was imported with Eastern oysters um, back in the late 1870s. Um, and so when the, the fact that the, it was found in the 2009 survey was interesting to us. Um, you know, and they found it relatively commonly, they listed it as common in, on Western Yerba Buena Island. Um, but we're guessing there's, there's two potential reasons that we didn't find it. One is that it either used to be present and for whatever reason, something happened and now they're not present on Western Yerba Buena Island, um, which is great news for the island. Um, or that the fact that we didn't find them anywhere on Yerba Buena Island. Um, but also the fact that um, it looks very similar to some other intertidal snails that we did find. Um, and interestingly, the, the preferred habitat of eastern oyster drills is actually very muddy sites. And so um, our potential, we're leaning towards the potential reason that they found it, we didn't, is actually, it was potentially misidentified in 2009. Um, and it was actually a, a native intertidal snail that they found that looks similar. Um, but either way, it's good news for, for your Rowena Island that we did not find the eastern oyster drill there. So um, we're happy to report that. Um, in terms of the introduced species, looking at our species list, we did want to see what introduced species that we found. We found 27 introduced species total across the four sites, the four regions that we looked at. So this is looking at Treasure Island and um, Eastern, or Treasure Island Marina and the Eastern Treasure Island site as well. Um, and our findings were pretty much in line with previous studies that um, the places you're going to find the most introduced species or the, or the, the bulk of the species list are going to be introduced species is the marina. Uh, fowling communities are like famously known for their for their non-native species, and that is where we found kind of the greatest percentage of non-natives, um, which is in line with other studies that have happened um, in that area before in the past. And these photos just kind of show you what it looks like if you ever stick your head underneath the, the docks at Treasure Island Marina. Um, these are some of the things that you can see um, under there. Um, and then finally, turning to, to the eelgrass surveys really quickly. Um, you know, Clipper Cove has historically harbored a really small, like less than one hectare um, uh, eelgrass bed. I um, mean, it's confined to a really narrow fringe along um, kind of the southern shoreline. Uh, and so we did uh, two walking surveys, or our colleagues did two walking surveys, two in the winter, or three walking surveys, two in the winter um, of 2019 and, 20, and 2020, and then one in the summer of 2020, um, and did not find, found no evidence of eelgrass during those walking surveys. So then we brought in our friend with the ROV and said, let's just make sure. Um, and so we did two ROV surveys of this region as well in the winter and summer of 2021, and also found no eelgrass there either. Um, and in our, in our research, you know, we found that the eelgrass at Clipper Cove has been declining over the past 15 years, um, but at its greatest extent, um, uh, it was never very big. <laughs> it was about 0 .2, 0 0.2 hectares in 2007 to less than 0.1 hectare in 2013. Um, and no eelgrass has been detected in previous surveys from 2015 to 2018. So our survey is just kind of in line with what other people have found. 
which made us really excited to go check out the eelgrass at Eastern Treasure Island because we did want to see some eelgrass and we were finding all this washed up eelgrass in, in Clipper Cove. Um, we realized it's most likely coming from Eastern, Eastern Treasure Island. Um, the eelgrass bed offshore of Eastern Treasure Island is pretty extensive, which is great. Um, we didn't study the extent of the bed, but it does basically kind of extend the, almost the entire, shore, the entire length of the Eastern shoreline. Um, and this could be an important source for reintroduction of eelgrass into Clipper Cove, if that's ever um, of interest. And the surveys of eelgrass there, we were able to find some interesting species, this um, seagrass labor, which is actually a red algae that grows on other types of seagrass, including eelgrass, is another one that actually has never been documented before in San Francisco Bay. We have a feeling it's there. It's probably in other eelgrass sites as well, um, but no one's bothered to actually collect it and put it in a collection, um, you know, in a, in a, into an herbarium anywhere. So our record ended up being the first one for San Francisco Bay. And we were also able to find um, some great uh, eelgrass associated species like this beautiful Taylor sea hare um, that you pretty much only find um, on eelgrass, uh, which is pretty nice. Um, and so, uh, on the whole, the Eastern Treasure Island eelgrass bed seems to be doing well. Um, and there's generally large fluctuations in eelgrass beds throughout San Francisco Bay. They're usually driven by like big events, like uh, lots of rain or big drought events. And so th that tends to be the, the, what drives a lot of the um, increase or decrease in eelgrass beds um, in these areas. So now I'm gonna turn it over to Rebecca to kind of talk about our conclusions from doing this survey. Awesome, thanks Allison. So as you can see from the results that, that Allison showed, um, the intertidal habitats of Yerba Buena are really diverse. They're home to hundreds of species. And we didn't even talk about the birds and fish. Um, we know we were just looking at invertebrates. Um, and the diversity of the intertidal that you find on Yerba Buena Island matches or surpasses that of any other rocky intertidal site that we know of um, in San Francisco Bay. Um, overall, the species composition is really similar, though, to the rest of the bay, but Yerba Buena Island is unique in that it's not just, you know, it has like a lot of different types of habitats. It has these cobble beaches. You saw these pictures when we were on those western-facing beaches with these rocky cobble areas. It has natural rock outcrops, um, sandy beaches, a sheltered bay, and a marina, and a marina with those human-made hard substrates. But it also has this strong marine influence as um, you know the tides change and the, the water comes in through the Golden Gate. Um, so that has a huge like ocean, oceanic influence. And then it has these more protected conditions on the eastern side of the island. And the combination of habitats and the different salinities and currents and wave action creates this really amazing mosaic that supports all these um, incredible species at Yerba Buena Island. And so Yerba Buena Island is an important part of the San Francisco Bay ecosystem and its diverse habitats should be protected and celebrated. So we have some specific recommendations about how to protect and celebrate these places. Um, one is something that's really incredible that I don't think we really expected. It's not, maybe it's not surprising, but it was a little unexpected. So these intertidal areas around natural rocky points on the island. So this is where like the island jets out in these like rocky, rocky points. Um, these areas around that start above the shoreline and extend like down into the water. So underwater back up onto the shore, they have the highest native species richness. So these are the places that we find the most different types of species. Um, and 
the, the really kind of interesting thing is not only do these points have the most native biodiversity, like as you look, um, these rocky points are actually really rare. So on the island, you know, we actually have a fair number of these points that stick out that have this like original rock. So not the riprap, not man, you know, rock that's been brought in from other places, but like the original rock. And so this is actually pretty rare in the San Francisco Bay. So you can see this map, it's a little hard to see, but it's hard to see because that red area represents original rock of San Francisco Bay. And it's very, very rare in the Bay. And so these areas are just not found um, throughout the Bay. And so it's really important to protect these areas and not um, modify or change them in any way because they're, they're quite rare. And one of the things that we found at these rocky points is that if you look upslope, so if you turn away from the Bay or, and you look up the slope, the most of these areas have really intact native habitat right above um, where this native biodiversity is some of the, is the highest. And there are a couple of reasons for this. Um, one is that these are areas where, because of this rocky substrate, there's not fresh water that's coming down in these sites. So there's not erosion and there's not runoff from the hill. Um, but also there, and this is something we're interested in studying a little bit more, is there some you know, other benefits to having this intact um, native habitat upslope that protects and helps um, promote biodiversity in um, the downslope or in, in intertidal and subtidal areas. All right, and so um, we, as you all know, that with all of the development and changes at Yerba Buena Island, more people will be visiting Yerba Buena Island as they are now, probably already with the ferry um, service. Um, and the area around the Torpedo House is now open to the public. And so these are areas that we think it would be really great to have interpretive signage about these places, how special and important they are, about the biodiversity, about the history of the island, um, just a way to engage people um, to kind of be mindful that these are amazing places, you know, to come and picnic and hang out and spend time and explore and fish. But they're also places that, um, you know, that nature calls home and that we need to protect these places and be mindful of the biodiversity in these places. All right, and so, and this eelgrass, so we, I think we're pretty surprised about how amazing and lush this um, eelgrass bed is right adjacent to Treasure Island. Um, and so we would recommend doing continued eelgrass surveys of this area. Um, and continuing to do surveys in Clipper Cove um, to see if eelgrass returns. Um, I think monitoring this area off Treasure Island is important to see if things change as Treasure Island is developed um, to just monitor this area. And also if there ever were plans to reintroduce eelgrass into Clipper Cove, to understand this bed as a potential source for um, reintroducing eelgrass into Clipper Cove. And then also we recommend continuing doing these really fun um, bio blitzes out on the island and getting people to explore the nature that's right here in the middle of the bay surrounded by millions of people. Um, that as we've explained today, the intertidal biodiversity is amazing and you know, we didn't even talk about like a lot of the like little, little tiny things, right? We don't want to go into detail about all of the amazing things that we found on the island. 
but just to um, help San Francisco residents, Treasure Island residents, um, Yerba Buena Island residents, um, understand the, the biodiversity and the nature that's right under their feet. Um, this, like bioblitzes are an amazing way to, to continue that exploration together and a really important source of data for the folks managing the island. So with that, um, we just want to thank you for the opportunity to talk with you today about the work that we did um, to Tida for the opportunity to do these surveys and to to really get to know this island in a, in a way that's really meaningful, I think, to both me and Allison. And it really is an incredible space. And we feel really honored to have spent this time there. And um, we're happy to answer any questions. Sure. Thank you. Thank you both, uh, Rebecca and Allison, for that report. And I would like to make sure that we get sent the link yeah. of the report. Um, I don't know if that was done um, earlier, but if um, we could, uh, all the board members, not just this committee, but all the board members receive it. That would be great. Um, and I was one of, um, in your earlier um, Yoga Buena Bioblitzes, I actually attended that and right. found out about your iNaturalist app, which has been a tremendous app um, to use, not just here, but all over, wherever you go, if you see um, an insect, or if you see a plant and you'd like to know what it is, you can use this iNaturalist app, take a photo of it, and they will give you some suggestions of what it might be. Sometimes they're certain, sometimes they say, well, it might be amongst the species, but it's an incredible tool for um, everybody who wants to learn more about the world around them. So thank you for that. Um, and I would also like to say that um, as I was introduced to Yoga Buena Island when I was on this BioBlitz, it is so important for us to have the outreach to the young people and to the residents of the island because um, they uh, learn, as they learn more about the nature around them, I think they have, they develop more of an appreciation of the place that they live in. And, and I think that the outreach to um, kids is really important and outreach to residents. And I like to see more of that. Um, the BioBlitz, for instance, this year, had I known a little bit earlier, I definitely would have come as well. Um, and, um, and so I'm hopeful that we will have certainly that as an annual event, but um, if there could be workshops as well, from the Academy to Treasure Island, you know, um, maybe it's a summer program, maybe it's only a one day workshop, but um, if we could do more educational um, work, um, I think that would benefit the people who live on the island and, and also have it be open to, you know, um, San Francisco and the Bay Area as well. So I'd like to pursue that and see what we might be able to do. Um, and the, uh, I, I'm so glad that we are documenting what the species are. And it's such a surprise to hear that we have such an incredible biodiversity that you've found over a hundred different, you know, species in these different areas. I mean, that is just quite wonderful. And so if we can learn more about it, that's really great. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you to talk about um, because people may not know, um, you've done a lot of eelgrass surveys, but why is eelgrass important to us? Could you talk a little bit about that? 
I mean, I can go ahead and maybe Allison can add on. I mean, so so eelgrass is really interesting species that um, is really important for for many reasons. One reason, so I'll just list some of the reasons, right? So eelgrass beds will protect the shore from waves and wave action. So it's really important, you know, just to protect the upland slopes from from wave action, um, especially during storms. Um, it is there's there's some conflict like there's back and forth evidence, but it's likely a very good carbon um, a holder of carbon. So it's a carbon sequestration source. Like you hear about redwoods and trees like be tying up carbon that's good for the climate. Eelgrass um, does the same, um, possibly more than kelp, which we hear a lot about a lot. Um, and these eelgrass beds are also nurseries for lots and lots of different species, especially fish. So. You know, if all of you, I'm sure, have seen people fishing off the eastern shore of, of um, Treasure Island, right, right adjacent to this eel bed, and that's because the fish live <laughs> in this eelgrass bed, and um, it's a really great place to protect those fish, also from other predators, like seals and sea lions don't really want to swim through the, the eelgrass, and so fish are in there, and they're safe, and they can find food, um, and there are lots of efforts throughout the Bay, especially um, Kathy Boyer at San Francisco State and her lab about um, restoring eelgrass throughout the Bay um, for climate and um, other protections and just for, for biodiversity. So um, it's an incredible thing to have, especially right there off the, the Treasure Island, right, right off this riprap where you you know, can see cars going by and the firefighters, you know, training and um, to see this amazing biodiverse um, eelgrass bed right there is pretty incredible. It might be one of the most urban eelgrass beds, although there's a little bit off um, off Aquatic Park as well in San Francisco, but um, it has a little bit of an urban feeling. I don't know, Allison, if you have anything more to add. No, I think you covered. I just—I <laughs> I don't know if anyone here is in the North Bay, but we're having thunder and hail, like hail pelting my house right now. <laughs> coming wow. Yeah. yeah. I was just like, Whoa, like what's going on? <laughs> but yes, Rebecca, I think covered all the main ways that eelgrass is really important in the Bay. <laughs> well, I think, you know, um, the vision for Treasure Island, the master plan that was passed in 2011 was very a very forward-thinking document. And one of the things which was envisioned was that the northern side of the island would eventually perhaps become what they call the wilds, which could be more wetlands and which could be a response to sea level rise as well. Um, and so um, documenting now what is already there and then to see in the future what we can, you know, um, do and to restore um, and bring back maybe some of the wetlands that were lost um, when the bay was being um, filled up. That is something, you know, that I think is, um, is a, a remarkable feature of the Treasure Island plan. So thank you very much for coming sure. today. Um, Linda, did you, Linda and Mike, did you have any questions or comments? Yes. And yes, I'm also I have comments. the time. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I have comments. Can I? Yes, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Johnson, Rebecca Johnson, Allison, and I also want to give a shout out to our staff, Peter Somersville, for spearheading this important project. And I want to remind, we got the privilege of this wonderful uh, presentation and the rest of San Francisco, the real stakeholders of this important project need to understand um, that the background 
of everything that we're doing at Treasure Island has to do is that I don't think people understand and we have to keep saying this. Uh, we had already won that leads platinum, as you know, the highest standard uh, in the world we have. So everything that we are doing at Treasure Island Development is a role model, uh, not just to North America, but throughout the world. And uh, Commissioner Shen mentioned earlier that um, the education of peace, and we have to accentuate that. Why is that? The work that you have just presented has implications to all developments everywhere, not just in California and West Coast, but throughout the world. Uh, I get calls of people that are watching where we are because of the broad collaboration that we have with universities, with um, you know, Dr. Johnson, with Allison, with uh, San Francisco Commission of the Environment. We have this extensive for people to be able to come in. And so I am going to uh, recommend some things here because we know we had the COVID. Everybody was sheltered in. But it is time right now that we have all these substantial studies that we need to really uh, blow things up and really elevate exactly what we are doing. I would like to see even documentaries that are because we are not just talking to ourselves. We are talking to everyone. And why is that? There are developments that are right now being initiated. There are people who are talking about that. In Northern California, huge, huge uh, developments that have biodiversity implications. And they need to understand, and they are inquiring, but we have not been able to get to them formally, that this is what we are capable of doing. We are doing this. This is a role model. They do not need to reinvent the wheel. They need to follow basically what we are, are doing because of the high standard. There are developments even within San Francisco. Just imagine when San Francisco, all these centuries, have had the opportunity that we have right now to capture the biodiversity. And here we are. We are founding a new species right here on Treasure Island. We have area like the rock parts, uh, Dr. Johnson mentioned that are unique to that area. And so when we went about doing the infrastructure, the development of Treasure Island is that every decision is encumbered on the fact that the discovery, where we are going to have and to share that. And so I saw some of the uh, slides that you have, it's mind boggling. We need to be able to capture all these pictures on uh, Treasure Island website. I know that we have a plan to redevelop the uh, website. So why don't you all, and again, we don't have to, how we go about doing this is another discussion, but it ought to be discussed. So I'm gonna put it at the table. A sort of educational utilizing documentaries, taking, we need this needs to be part of the curriculum of the schools in San Francisco. These kids are learning right now, and this is a learning. We have it right there in their backyard. And it's not only even for San Francisco students, because all the knowledge here, like I said, is universal. So we really all also need to do that. Commissioner Shen mentioned about having these workshops, and this is about time that we need to take this information of the road, how we are going to do that. No, I am excited about that. We've been talking about this for a long time, and so, all these ideas needs to be formulated 
And so I would proceed meeting with Allison and Dr. Johnson, uh, Commissioner Bay, and our director where we can sit down and be able to formulate what are the best way that we can disseminate this information. Definitely there are resources that we not talk about that will enable the development of Treasure Island again to meet and exceed the standard that we've already set. I don't wanna be the only one privileged to this information or the only one that is excited about this particular information. So I'm gonna, that's the plan that I need to elevate the dissemination, the outreach educational aspects of this you know, project. Dr. Johnson, you mentioned there are 27 species of introduced species that you captured. I, how are we treating those? Again, if they are plants, people will recommend getting rid of them. And we know where the eucalyptus on Treasure Island are not native species. However, we were able to at least uh, contain their, you know, uh, it, it's their location. It, and so what is the recommendation on, where, on introduced species? And what implication do they have on the native species? Is this at this species at a point where they overrun everybody? Or we need to begin to have a plan to look at them based on research to really see what we are going to do. I would like that to be also part of this discussion. So could you please just uh, elaborate on that for me? Thank you. Yeah, Allison, do you want to take that one? I can follow up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in terms of the, the introduced species that we found, um, you know, the place that they have the most impact is in the fowling communities on the docks. Um, and that is the place that you generally tend to find a lot of introduced species. It's difficult because, you know, we can clean them off of the docks, but because uh, these are all species that are found in the rest of San Francisco Bay, it would almost have to be like a bay-wide effort to, to you know, try to uh, uh, remove or get rid of our non-native species um, in the bay. And in some cases, um, there are like, Scientists and some, for some species aren't even sure if like they're introduced or just like cryptogenic, like they're not even sure where some species have come from, just because San Francisco Bay has been, um, you know, a harbor to non-native species for so long now. Um, luckily, in the more natural places, especially on Western uh, Yerba Buena Island, those uh, introduced species don't really outcompete. The, the native species, at least not yet. Um, they're not really adapted for, you know, these kind of more natural, like more wave exposed habitats. I would say probably the place that um, it would be best to keep an eye on is more like within Clipper Cove and Eastern Uruguayna Island, just because that they are, there are, they are more similar conditions to what you would find in kind of these more sheltered docks and, and harbors and things like that as well. But on the whole, um, non-native species don't have quite as big of an effect um, in intertidal areas as they do specifically on these like man-made um, places within the bay as well. But yeah, getting rid of them, I would love to see a bay-wide effort, but it would be so hard. <laughs> Rebecca, I don't know if you have more to add. <laughs> yeah, I would just um, echo what Allison said. You know, most of these species, they, they're introduced, but they're, they're not what you would call invasive, right? So they don't really cause that many problems. I mean, I'm sure like the dock owners and boat owners would disagree because getting them off your boats and docks is quite expensive and can be um, a big problem. Um, but, you know, there's one species, there's one, it's called, it's a, um, a thing called, it's a tunicate, right? The dog vomit tunicate. <laughs> so it has a terrible common name. But it is a, it's a relative, it's actually a chordate kind of related to us, but as an adult, it looks like a 
kind of encrusting mass, that one can become invasive and can become a problem. And we did see that in Clipper Cove. That's the only one that I would like maybe actively remove um, and get rid of, but otherwise really protecting the native species that are there and providing the opportunity for those native species to, to do well and not adding lots of hard man human-made structures is probably the best defense against them. Thank you. Um, I just got a message that item five, the person who's presenting has to leave at two, which gives us only six minutes to talk about <laughs> sea level rise. So much as I enjoyed this discussion and thank you very much for coming. And Mike, I'm sorry to, to cut off any questions that you may have, but I want to make sure that we have the presentation on sea level rise. Thank you so much. Um, and we look forward to continuing work with you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank thanks you. so much. Thank you. Okay. Public comment. Um, do we have public comment? There is no public comment. Okay, then we'll go to the next item. Item five, five-year sea level rise findings presentation by Moffat and Nickel. Okay, mm. thank you. And is it Dilip um, you're going to be presenting? I'm sorry, I didn't get the message that you had to leave early. Um, otherwise, we'd have um, gotten to you earlier, but I hope you can stay a few more minutes because sea level rise is such an important issue. We're constantly asked questions about being an island in the middle of the bay. What are we doing? You know, and so we look forward to having your update on this. Thank you. Go ahead. Thank you so much, uh, Commissioners. I just uh, sent in a, a note to my other meeting saying I will be 15 minutes late. I do want to give it justice here. so. I will not do it in five minutes. It's too big of a topic to try and just, you know, shoehorn in there. So, exactly. um, all right. So what I could do is, you know, let me just share my screen. And, um, you know, there's a few things I wanted to, you know, just to set the stage for what the work was about, you know, so this was the five-year update was a part of the regulatory approval process from BCDC in response to the development uh, projects approach to sea level rise, you know, so as part of that work in 2016, um, we had led and put together a sea level rise risk assessment for the island and developed an adaptation strategy <clears throat> for sea levels that might exceed the projections that were at that point in time um, you know, being used. Part of the permit from BCDC required that at a five-year from start of construction that the developer come back and provide an updated science on sea level rise projections. And so the, the very specific requirements that BCDC had put together, we produced a, a, a draft of a five-year monitoring report um, and I'll, I'll, I'll skip to the first page, which actually lists what BCDC very specifically asked for. And so their requirements were to describe whether that report that we did in 2016 is still current with any updated sea level rise projections that come out from the science community and from other agencies itself, provide data on any land settlement since 2016. Um, again, the concern there was, um, you know, is it just sea level rise or is it 
uh, an acceleration, perceived acceleration of sea level rise because the land behind the perimeter is also settling, so which would increase the relative sea level rise to be a combination of both. Uh, the third thing was to present observations on water levels. So has current data since 2016 in terms of tidal records, which are being monitored here in the Bay, do they indicate that there is an acceleration of sea levels over this time period? Uh, document any occurrences of flooding that took place uh, and then produce this report itself. And so we went down, uh, you know, basically the requirements itself and provided the updated water levels. So this was the section on water levels where we looked at NOAA data. So this is the Department of Commerce from uh, the National Oceanic Administration that monitors uh, tight gauges uh, throughout the country itself. And they prepare statistics and update those statistics because you do need a lot of data to compute a mean tide level for a certain tide gauge. You need several years of data and to to calculate what the what the statistical mean, and that would be what is what we call the mean tide or the mean sea level, and then what is the average of all the high tides, which we call mean high tide. And, and so on with those tidal datums itself. And so what we have seen is that since it requires that a long amount, and that period is pretty long, it's 19 years on average that you need data. It's called a tidal epoch. And using 19 years of data, you can compute what the mean high water or the mean sea level. And so to update sea level rise projections, you need that term data. So what we used what was what existed at the time was was um, estimates like these from NOAA with a linear trend. Many of us have heard that the long-term trend of water levels in San Francisco Bay or along the Pacific West Coast are rising at about two millimeters per year. The updated so this was based on tight gauges itself about 15 years, 20 years ago. You know, they realized that just waiting for this 19 year period and then computing it is not good enough. And so they they put up these satellites up in the air, air which uh, are monitoring very high resolution monitoring of water levels. And they can compute the averages, you know, a lot quicker. And so this is the data that we then updated, which did not exist back in 2016. And what the data shows, so this is using four or I think five different satellite programs that NOAA, um, uh, you know, had, had put up. You know, the very earliest ones were the TOPEX that went through the early 2000s, and the latest one is the JSON-3 is what they call. And what the data indicates is that, yes, there has been an acceleration in the rate at which sea levels are rising, that 1.97 millimeter per year the data from the satellites is showing 2.9. So, you know, it may not seem like a lot, but a millimeter over two millimeters is a 50% increase in the annual rates of sea level rise itself. So that was the first update that we provided on water levels. Um, the, the next one was to, was to look at, you know, were there any anomalies in San Francisco, in the San Francisco Bay Area that might go even 
more than some of these observations that we did not find. Uh, you know, it was an El Nino year, and so there were more king tides last year than occurred in the past, and which is very typical with an El Nino where the entire Pacific is elevated by a few millimeters um, every few years. And over time, we have seen that these El Nino occurrences are on average, you know, six to seven years apart. Um, that was an El Nino year, you know, so we reported that data itself. The other significant effort that occurred in the region since the production of our report was uh, FEMA updated their flood insurance studies. And when San Francisco joined FEMA, um, you know, so San Francisco has never, since there really aren't any rivers, you know, which is what drives FEMA uh, insurance, San Francisco never was part of FEMA for, you know, the past, ever since FEMA was formed. They agreed to join FEMA uh, only about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It took that long for FEMA to produce the 100-year water levels and the, what we call the base flood elevation. And so now we have that, which did not exist back then. And so the update in that regard is that what we had computed um, using, you know, we use the same methods that FEMA uses. We had computed an elevation of 9.2 feet uh, as being the 100-year tide, the 100-year water level, or the 1%, and there's so many different names given to this water level elevation that occurs on average once every 100 years, uh, or what is more uh, technically correct is that in any given year, there's a 1% chance that this water level could occur, right? So that was 9.2. The FEMA update um, was about six inches higher, right? So they're at about 9.6 or 9.7 is what we are seeing FEMA's update is. So that was new information that we reported. Um, so did that, what, so do the water levels result in a change in the strategy that was documented back in 2016. Um, that I'll get to it in a, in, a, in a minute here. The other part was flooding events. Were there any instances of flooding along Treasure Island? And we did not observe any. There, there's been none reported over the past five years uh, that would be over what has happened in the past, given the existing elevations, given the areas where no work has been done the amount of flooding has not changed. The third thing we had to do was to look at sea level rise projections. You know, we had adopted at that point the best science that was available, and that was from the state, from the state of California. Um, and it was um, the office of, office of, uh, what was this, the OPC, the, the Office of Planning, I think, or, or the Ocean Protection Council. So they had put together uh, these summaries and, and, and California, Washington, and Oregon had got together and they brought in the Academy of Sciences back in 2012. And the Academy issued a report, which is what we had used back in 2016, the NRC study, the National Research Council. And so have these projections changed? That's what we went back to the literature that was after 2016 and presented it. So, and, and so this was the strategy that was documented 
Um, this essentially captures the Treasure Island adaptation strategy that given the projection trend that was utilized by us or by the project at that time, when would there need to be adaptations made to the perimeter of the island itself? At that time, we had envisioned um, you know, two steps in the sense that the first phase of the project was going to be built up to a level that matches this 39 inches, that is, 36 inches is what is shown here. So the plan at that time was build the perimeter for the phase one areas to an elevation that will accommodate three feet of sea level rise. Once that three feet of sea level rise was approaching, and this is the timeline at the bottom, at that point when it is about 30 inches of sea level rise has been observed, at that point, the community would go ahead and build one adaptation, which would be, and we saw many of the adaptation schematics in there, you know, they would raise the trail along the edge, and that would give them another two feet of sea level rise protection. That was what was envisioned for that first phase. The developer recognizing, you know, it, it really would not be in the best interest to have anything lower than that abandoned this lower level of planning, which was for you know 12 inches only of sea level rise. And so they 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 have accepted and utilized this 36 inches of sea level rise as a base case. So everything at Treasure Island is being built to accommodate three feet of sea level rise right now. When that is being approached, there will be one adaptation. So that was the strategy at that time. Then we went ahead and looked at, you know, okay, these are now the new data. So, you know, it was in the news, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is called the IPCC, issued their uh, report six, AR6 is what is called the assessment report uh, in 2021, just last year. So that's about the best and latest science that we could utilize we overlaid that adaptation strategy onto these new projection lines here. And what we see in here is that the strategy that has been employed well accommodates even the IPCC numbers. The IPCC numbers were not much larger than the state you know, numbers that we had used. However, there was much more confidence in these numbers. When the state had done it, it was really low, medium, and high possibility or low, medium, and high confidence. So the IPCC report had a much higher confidence in a rate. The strategy accommodates the new numbers that the IPCC report. Then we also looked at the next level, which was the Army Corps. They also issued an update in 2021, even though the Army Corps you know, code or, or, or regulatory guidance does not apply to the project, you know, there was a lot of thought put into the federal government establishing these. So we compared it to, you know, those elevated or um, sea level rise numbers. Again, the strategy that we had accommodates, you know, all of those and no change is needed to the strategy that was established back in 2016. We also looked at 
the most recent one. So that in, in 2018, California has always been, you know, at the forefront. And so they've always used projection numbers that are higher than pretty much anywhere in the world, right? There's a very low appetite for risk. And so that was documented in this Ocean Protection Council's highest range. And that's this red range right here. And what that red range, so this is higher than the 2016 estimates, but it comes with a probability attached to it. And so this is an extremely low probability of occurrence. It's a half percent, which basically, if I can, in a, in a colloquial sense, what it would mean is that there is a 99.5% chance that the sea levels will be below this number. The 5%, which is the blues, happened to be pretty much what the earlier documents had indicated. And so there's a 95% likelihood that sea, level, sea levels will not exceed this number, right? There's a 95% likelihood that sea levels will not be higher than this blue line, which if I were to pick a number and let's say 50 years from now, about 2070, the sea level rise will be at that point about 30 inches sea level rise will be 30 inches compared to 2000. At that level, for that number, the strategy is still okay. In the event that this uh, half percent probability, this extremely low likelihood um, of, of sea level rise, which would be, which would come along with drastic melt at, in the Arctic and large-scale losses of glaciers in the Antarctic, in that case, if that were to happen, then it is possible that this number could happen. So that is why they had put this in. If that were to take place, the strategy that was employed by the project, which was to make the adaptation in about 2070, 2072, would have to be fast-forwarded to somewhere around 2063 or so, so 10 years. So those adaptations would need to be built 10 years earlier. What would be interesting to also see is that this was back in, you know, so this goes back to 2000. So what we did as part of this monitoring report was to overlay what the actual observations are. Since there are 20 years or 25 years, um, well, we are in 22, so we have up to 22 years of data water level data to overlay and match against these different projection lines and see what is the data showing in terms of sea level rise itself. Is it tracking this extremely high low probability number or is it tracking you know, a lower likelihood number? Well, what we see from the ultimate data that I shared was that it's tracking um, you know, this, what we call this number here, but it is the it is the two millimeter per year, right? So if, if that projection holds true, we are looking at a sea level rise of only about eight inches or so. And that is what you probably read in the Chronicle, I think last month, that the new science indicates that sea level rise by the year 2050 is probably going to be eight inches or less rather than, you know, over two feet, which is what this red line would seem to indicate. So we reported that data back to BCDC since there was interest there. And then we updated, you know, what happened with the FEMA maps. Again, the FEMA maps 
show that large tracts of Treasure Island along the northwest corner are mapped to be in a floodplain. So everything in blue is in a floodplain right now. And the city would not allow basically any development or habitable structures to be below this elevation of plus 10, which is not the case with the project anyway. The project is has, has committed for all finished floors to be at an elevation of, you know, instead of 10, the, the project's proposal is to build everything to 13.5, right? So that's what is being done. Um, and I think that was it. So the, the other one also was to see, are there large scale, is there land motion, vertical land motion? So is there accelerated settlement on Treasure Island? Um, you know, there a report out was, you know, well, it's still under construction. We haven't seen vertical land motion on a regional scale that is any different than what has been recorded. You know, this is not tied to climate change at all, right? This is not tied to sea level rise or, or um, you know, or any other aspect of climate change. Um, and so the data at this point really does not indicate that there has been a change in the vertical land motion for the Bay Area. Um, so that was just a reporting requirement itself. And then we concluded that um, that the risk the risk assessment strategy may not need to, well, the only place where a potential allowance might need to be added to that risk assessment report is to keep in line with this new OPC guidance, you know, this one here, that if this were, and we would have that data. So if data in the next five years indicates that there has been, you know, large scale collapse of ice sheets and glaciers happening and is in the news, which is pushing this trend up, then in that case, we would change the commitment for the project to start building those adaptations 10 years earlier than planned within the document itself. I'll, I'll stop there and see if there's any, any questions. Let me stop my sharing my screen right there. Yes. 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 Um, yes. Thunder, would you like to go ahead? And then I have some questions as well. Go ahead. Thank you, Mr. Trevedi. And I know that we have time constraints, so I'm going to just pose some questions. Definitely, we need to bring you back because, again, this is an important, um, you know, matter. So let me pass track uh, to some of the questions, you, you know, that um, you can answer, you can really bring back. So did it a request from the BCDC asking you, is it part of the ongoing monitoring agreement that we have, or is because the data, they are looking at the data, for instance, the acceleration of um, sea level rise and the, um, the anomalies, we know that uh, there are increase on the uh, pink ties. And the reason I'm asking those questions is that it seems to me that we need to have our own checkpoint and you can help us. Every five years or seven or whatever, where we look at this data for the ongoing monitoring of uh, Treasure Island. Number two, I know that all these assumptions, expectations, again, like you just presented, were built into the development of the island. We get asked this a lot and we have to keep repeating them. Based on the information that you have, Mr. Trivedi, you know, just yes or no for people that may be listening are not aware. 
are you saying that the performance, the plan that we have for the development of Cheshire Island uh, is in uh, conformance with all those new data that are coming? So that's one question and you answer that. May I suggest that in your presentation, all the forward-looking statements that we, we sort of put them in a graph. For instance, you mentioned that if the data were to show the ice glaciers, maybe we need to plan 10 years ahead of that. The development of Chacho Island is to continue for eternity. So can we have something that even right now, based on those assumptions, we need to revisit and beginning to see here where we are again, when we need to do the planning, if all those statements, so we can have that blueprint. And lastly, every jurisdiction that I know are asking the federal government for grants of Treasure Island. Isn't it time for us, and this may be to Director Beck and the Commission, for us to seek the funding that we might have in place to put that so that we can continue to do these ongoing studies because they are going to be necessary uh, the development of Treasure Island. So that's how, um, what I have for now. And I would say that we would like to bring you back because I have other questions. Thank you, sir. Sure. Um, was there a question, uh, uh, Linda, that you wanted answered? Yes, Mr. Trevedi, those questions, which one are you able to um, answer for me? Um, I mean, there are several questions there. So the question about where is the data, right? So is this data easily accessible? Um, uh, yes, it is publicly available because this was a requirement within the development agreement between TIDA and BCDC that every five years, the project is going to generate a sea level rise monitoring report, which is publicly available. It is a good summary of all the science rather than going out individually and seeking, you know, what is OPC saying? Well, this document summarizes, you know, pretty much all of that science. Uh, does the plan, the, the, the forward-looking risk assessment and the adaptation strategy need to change as a result of um, updates to sea level rise science? Potentially, you know, if the data indicates that the sea level rise is much higher than what was what the project has been built for, then we would need. And what are those, those changes? Well, those changes would be in terms of time. So if there was a plan to accommodate three and a half feet of, beyond three and a half feet of sea level rise by the year 2070, we might have to accelerate that process and bring it to 2060. That was the beauty about the Treasure Island sea level rise strategy, and that is why it received, you know, worldwide attention that up front, so much sea level rise allowance is being built into it that changes to the numbers are only going to result in changes in timeline at which adaptations are going to be made. So for the next 40 years, using the most conservative numbers that we're seeing out there in the world, we are seeing that Treasure Island is not going to be affected for the next 50 years. That is what you know. the numbers are showing. Um, so those are the two, you know, I would say, I would agree with you that, you know, TI has, the Treasure Island has become a sort of catalyst 
and you know can this technology the 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 documents and the project be leveraged to procure additional federal funds for other pieces yes i think so i think things like regional land motion um the things like you know uh, techniques for public access uh techniques and guidelines for setbacks i think those could become you know, and I think some of those, at least two of the ones that I just mentioned, BCDC has adopted into their climate change plan as part of their new Bay Plan itself. So, thank you. Um, thank you. Mark, did you have your hand up? Go ahead. I, I did. Thank you. Um, thank you, uh, sir, for this you know really great presentation. Um, I guess one thing uh, in the '89 earthquake. I think there was a claim that the island sunk maybe six feet, and is that is that true? And is that obviously it's a potential problem? And then I guess just finally, I just wanted to. I guess I'm pretty assured, um, reassured by your um, presentation that um, our plan is pretty good now and will go for quite some time without adjustment, unless something like a huge earthquake happens. So in terms of, you know, yes, the 89 earthquake had resulted in liquefaction of a significant portion along the Northwest Island. There was slumping that occurred and the Navy had to come back and fix some of those areas. And this was just the, the nature of the fill, the nature of the construction practice itself, the way Taiji Island was built using dredged sand and so sand liquefies the science of liquefaction and mitigation techniques for building did not exist back in the 80s and i think after loma prieta the building codes the california building codes after the northridge earthquake you know all of those building codes have been modified significantly such that liquefaction has to be eliminated or addressed during building so the plan that the developer has put together is to remove liquefaction as a concern with all the work that you're seeing going on out at the island with the vibro compaction with the surcharge that you're seeing so that will will not occur in the future because of all those those issues are being taken care of so the you know i would say other than sea level rise the most significant element that has received international attention at portage island is the scale of the geotechnical improvements island-wide. So hopefully that answers. Yeah. Thank you. And um, would you um, would you clarify, because in some of your comments, it was that you expect the um, sea level rise and the adaptations to be 30 inches and um, and sometimes it was three feet and 36 inches. Yeah. And sometimes it was three and a half feet. So which numbers are we talking about? So so all three numbers are relevant. So what the 30 inch number is the is the alarm going on that we have reached 30 inches. We only have allowance for 36 inches, which is three feet. And so therefore we should start our planning process and start doing the CEQA documents and the you know obtaining fill or whatever needs to be done. And so we are allowing 
for the time that would take for six inches of sea level rise between 30 and 36 inches to occur. I see. Okay, thank yeah. you. The and three, um, yeah, the three and a half feet was just the additional allowance that is being built into the finished floors of all residential structures in on Treasure Island. So even with three feet of sea level rise, when water has, let's say, if no mitigations have been done, water would come over the top of the perimeter, the buildings would not flood because you have six inches of freeboard or allowance above that. So those are the three numbers. <laughs> Right. Uh, and are the ground floor levels of the buildings, um, aren't they also elevated, the ground floor levels? Yeah, so the ground floor levels are, yeah, I, mean, I said first floor, but yes, yeah, so the ground itself, the first floor of the habitable building itself is elevated to three and a half feet, sea level rise allowance. Mm -hmm. Round of the first floor, yes. <laughs> uh -huh. and, and also there's, there's building setbacks from yes. the water's edge. Um, and that um, is also meant to protect the, those buildings from the effects of sea level rise as well. That is uh, correct. Yeah, it gives, yeah, it gives the room to build any additional adaptations. If you had to build a 10 foot high, you know, let's say now you have 10 feet of sea level rise, even with 10 feet of sea level rise, we have left so much room on Treasure Island that you'd be able to come back and build an Embarcadero type of roadway along the edge and you're still protected. Right, and do we call the setback? Um, yeah. Is it 100 feet? Is it 300 feet? So it's 300 feet, pretty much all along the um, the west shoreline. The one facing San Francisco is 300 feet all along there. At the north and the east, it's hundreds of feet because you've got parks and open spaces there. Along Clipper Cove. You know there aren't any buildings planned, so those hangars are the only ones that would be within that 300 feet. But all the all buildings are being set back over 300 feet. Right, all the new buildings. Yeah. So um, yes, and then um, is the sea level rise, uh, the sea level, different in the bay than it is along the coast, where the ocean water comes in, in terms of uh, the king tide issues, you know, the high tide issues, the one, the once in a hundred year tides. Right. Is there a difference in impact um, for the island in the bay as opposed to the coast? There is a big difference only in terms of the energy of the waves that attack the coast versus the waves that would impact Treasure Island. In the bay, we are protected. We don't have waves that exceed, you know, two and a half feet, maybe three feet, you know, in certain storm um, uh, directions. Out on the open coast, you know, we are seeing more wave impact, mm -hmm. and that is contributing to more erosion losses. So we are seeing loss of coastline because of waves. Very different than San Francisco Bay. That's right. Okay. So thank you very much. Um, uh, are there any other questions? Um, thank you very much for this presentation. As I said, you know, we do uh, enjoy hearing from you. Um, I think that we have a very, again, forward-thinking plan in that there was an adaptation strategy that was built into our plan, not knowing exactly what the sea level rise was going to be in the future. And I think that this was very wise um, that we um, are able to look at it every five years, monitor if there's adaptations that are required, we would then do those adaptations rather than overbuild um, what was necessary. So um, thank you very much for your report.
There is no public comment. Thank you. So um, we will go to the next item, I believe. Item number six, legacy household ranking for the transition unit offers. Hello. Hi, hi, uh, director. Um, I'll start. Hello. The, I think uh, we lost you, Kate. We can't hear you. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Can, can we hear? Okay. Yeah, I, I, okay, I've got, it. yes, thank you. Um, and, and I would ask Bob, you know, we had put this, um, this item on the agenda specifically because it had been asked for by, um, one of the directors who's not here today. And I'm just wondering if it makes sense, um, to have this report. Uh, be given to us um, at another time. I'll, I'll leave it to your judgment, Bob. Commissioner. Um, Commissioner. Yes, Linda, go ahead. Yes, please. So, Commissioner Dalashandra, actually, at the last time I meeting, you are correct, posed a series of questions. And we happen to have these committee a hearing and uh, to accommodate the request we uh, put it in there. So unfortunately, she's not here today. Uh, the question basically that she raised because that's supposed to be an upcoming uh, lottery for housing. And I think it kind of centered around that. So she's not here and maybe just, uh, you know, general line, uh, you know, outline where we are right now. Is that lottery, lottery is still in place? and have all the uh, residents be properly apprised or something, something like that, not going to the, uh, you know, full presentation of what we've been presenting all along, but just a status as to where we are and this ladder maybe might be able to be generic enough to uh, answer this question. So that's my suggestion. Yeah. Um, I, I'd also ask Kate if, if do we have members of the public uh, that are here to, to, that you can see? We do not. There okay. are no members of the public on. And they could and be watching from SF Gulf or later. Yeah. So. What, yes. What, what I would propose though is, is we, we did have uh, some slides prepared uh, kind of summarizing what the legacy ranking is and uh, summarizing the information that was shared with residents at the two open houses that were held. Um, and then we also had a, a summary of, of the outreach efforts. Um, so what I, I think I would propose, because we have discussed before uh, at the title board, the, the need to do the ranking. Um, what I would propose is that we just go straight to the summary of the outreach efforts um, and then potentially bring this back for a future conversation. If yeah, and where we are specifically with the up upcoming lotto. So yeah. and then we can bring it back. Just something simple. We don't need to go yeah. back to yes. all the other stuff that we've done. Um, Mike okay. wants to have a, a comment. Yes, Mike. Um, yeah, just I think there were some misunderstandings about the lottery. And so it might be good to run through it and for so we can reference back to this meeting. Good. Um, thank you. Um, so then we'll go ahead with the presentation. Uh, and particularly the summary, and then a um, again uh, uh, refreshing the public's um, memory about 
the process for the lottery. Okay, uh, Kate, can you allow me to share content? Yes, you should have it. So I will I will drive the the slide deck uh, for Karen and myself uh, today. Uh, Karen Edelman from uh, Associated Right of Way Services, who are our our Treasure Island advisors, uh, uh, led the outreach effort for the meetings and and uh, uh, the also uh, co-presented uh, the material there. Um, but we're we're talking today about. What we are, what we've called the legacy household ranking, and that is just an effort to. Um, I'm sorry, people see my presentation now. I think perhaps yeah, it started yes, before it came see up. It. Yeah, um, uh, which is intended a, a, to determine the order in which um, households that were established prior to the DDA prior to June of 2011, will be offered the transition unit, unit benefit that is available to them under the, under the transition housing rules and regulations. Um, the the, the, the THRNR the, the established that the households that were here at the time of the DDA would have the offer of a transition unit which is a replacement unit so that they can continue to be part of this community as it moves into the future. Um, advisory assistance, uh, moving payment, and, and pre-marketing notices. They, they also have the option, if they choose not to take the transition unit, to take an in-lieu cash payment or to take down payment assistance uh, towards the purchase of either a below market rate or market rate uh, condominium. Um, and then there are a number of uh, uh, opportunities that, that we've also provided through uh, implementation policies uh, as, we've, as we've gone through this process. But the, the ranking um, is, is proposed to be done on, November, on May 5th, um, and Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development will conduct the lottery for us um, because, A, they have... Uh, the software systems for conducting this type of ranking and B, they have the uh, facilities and the systems for live web live webcasting uh, the, the process so that people can observe it uh, in real time as it occurs. So uh, we're working with Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development and two questions that came up through through some of the meetings, uh, to, to Mark's point, is there's no action that is required uh, of households before the ranking occurs. And after the ranking occurs, there's no immediate action or decision that households uh, are going to be required to make. Um, what What this ranking will do is allow people to know relative to the overall population of 164 uh, legacy households, how soon uh, they may receive an offer of a transition unit. And our first 23 transition units will be in the Mercy Catholic Charities building 
which will be breaking ground next month. And as that building is being constructed, um, we will we will first seek legacy households who wish to relocate into that building to volunteer for the opportunity to occupy those 23 transition units. And then um, as construction advances, whatever units have people have not volunteered to take, we will begin the process of, of making transition unit offers to households in the order of the legacy household unit ranking uh, based on the avail availability of appropriately sized units. The reminder that this building will include 23 transition units, five of which are four bedroom units, um, 23, I'm sorry, 14 of which are three bedroom units and four of which are two bedroom units. So if people are entitled to uh, a four bedroom unit, uh, the, the highest ranked person will, who is, is entitled to a four bedroom unit will be offered one of those four bedroom units. But um, it's not just the top 23 ranked households that may be offered transition units because perhaps the, the top 10 households uh, are all entitled to four bedroom units, um, but we only have four, four bedroom units. So then we'll keep going down the ranking until we reach people who are entitled to three bedroom units and so forth. Um, in terms of conducting the ranking, it is gonna be a random ranking, um, but the, the households that live on Avenue B or Gateview Avenue will be moved to the top of the rankings because those areas are um, uh, some of the first areas that will be impacted by development. And you see here uh, the future development area um, and this purple area here is um, Avenue, Avenue B and Gateview. So this is some of the first area that will be uh, heavily impacted by development. And so that's why those households will be at the top of the ranking. Um, just, this just illustrates, uh, that same, uh, um, area that this purple area, what we often call the 1300 series housing, because most of these households have a, a, an address that begins with 1300. That was the third phase of the Navy's build out of the housing and, uh, an area that, that will be heavily impacted in the early phase of development. Um, and so when uh, uh, they're, they're offered a transition unit, households will have the option of accepting that transition unit offer or uh, taking the, the transition unit and, and claiming the in lieu payment that is their alternative under the transition housing rules and regulations. Uh, in, in either case though, they'll need to vacate their, their current unit. Um, just I'll go quickly through this in terms of other options, renting affordable units, uh, either within the same Mercy building or inclusionary affordable units. We're going to have several buildings, uh, being completed in the same time frame that are market rate buildings with, um, inclusionary condominiums and inclusionary rental units or the option of the in-lieu cash payment. And this just kind of shows the, 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 the pipeline of projects that we expect to see uh, in the next three years 
the units here at the top are all part of the Mercy Catholic Charities building, uh, the Catholic Charities replacement units, the 23 transition units, and then an additional 43 units. And then in addition to that, though, there will be uh, more than 500 market rate units uh, in buildings that have an additional 39 inclusionary uh, both rental uh, affordable units and inclusionary uh, below market rate condominiums. Um, and um, as we look forward into 2025, there will be uh, a few more opportunities as well. Uh, so then I wanted to also really highlight um, the outreach that was done prior to the meeting and, and uh, communications that have been made subsequent to the meeting. Um, and so I'll turn it over to Karen to describe uh, their their uh, efforts. Great, thank you, Bob. Um, as many of you know, we have traditionally used emails um, from residents who've signed up with us. Um, we've also encouraged them all to join um, our portal system so that that's somewhere that the documents live and we can communicate with them on that. Um, and we also use door hangers to specifically reach um, different groups. So it, in this case, our focus was the legacy households. So um, as you all know, we have quite a few residents at the Villages on Treasure Island, but we were specifically targeting um, the legacy households. Um, in our conversation today, where legacy household means legacy household or a mixed household that has legacy residents in it. So altogether, we have 164 legacy or mixed households. Um, we reached out to them. Uh, we originally reached out to the CAG members just to give them a call and let them know it was happening. Um, and then on March 25th, we um, sent emails to 270 legacy residents. Again, that's individual occupants um, who we knew to be legacy. Sent 270 in English and 42 in Spanish. As you can see, um, we had uh, 162 of those were opened. We can track how they're opened um, in English and 20 in Spanish. Um, we know that sometimes that's duplicated. Um, we have two or more emails per household. Um, so it, so we know that at least uh, we reached half the households and we assume that quite a few of those folks um, were sharing it with their roommates or uh, family members um, as well. Uh, we delivered 164 door hangers, so we were sure we reached every single legacy household. We sent reminder notices on April 5th. Um, as you can see the count there, we again sent 270. We had 150 open, uh, 42 in Spanish, 18 were open. Ultimately, um, we held the meetings um, in the evening of the 6th and the morning, um, Saturday morning on the 9th. We had a total of 66 attendees. And uh, the graphic on the right is just one of the information outreach um, documents we used. Next slide, Bob. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Forgot I was driving. Uh, yeah, well. Um, so we just wanted to let you know uh, what the follow-up is, that um, between April 1st and the 9th, we provided information and links and sent out what we call the legacy ranking FAQs, which is multiple-page document um, where we were really trying to lay out the information for people um, so that they could also re reference it as needed. Um, April 6th to the present, we've had phone discussions, emails, meetings with over 22 legacy residents. Um, we've been sending them copies of the PowerPoint. Um, we've sent them the 
uh, FAQs. We sent them links to the recorded meeting. Uh, we discussed legacy ranking date um, because as Director Dunlop mentioned, there was just some confusion and we wanted to make sure that the people that were confused were, um, we were giving as much information as possible. And um, we had over 120 residents log into the portal to access the documents that are specific to them or um, common documents like the FAQs. And then on the 18th, um, just a couple of days ago, we sent another email out to everyone with live links and said, hey, this is where you can get a copy of all these documents we referenced. We wanna make sure that you have access to everything. Uh, next slide. Um, and so this is just for those of you who are not engaged in the portal and you have every opportunity to do that, if you'd like, we're happy to sign you up. Um, these are the kind of documents that live on that portal. We have 787 residents overall who um, have portal accounts. 120 of those um, were accessed um, since we started this uh, legacy outreach on the 6th. And so we have the THRNRs and the IAPs and the pre-marketing request form and pre-marketing notices and uh, letters to the residents, frequently asked questions, information about below market rate housing um, and preliminary notices of eligibility for all the households so that they understand what their rights are. And so those that live there, they can access them at any time. Next. Um, Again, this just kind of tells you all the different things that are on that portal uh, so we can reach everybody. Our next goals really are, um, we had the, the virtual meetings in April and we are continuing to reach out to anybody who contacts us. Um, and we're having that um, ranking, legacy household ranking on May 5th at noon. It will be recorded. And then a week later, we're gonna send all the legacy households information. It's gonna be a simple letter. It just says, you don't have to do anything right now. Uh, we just want you to know where you are at the ranking um, and we're happy to talk to you now so you understand uh, what's going on and, and the benefits that are available to you. Um, but we'll also contact you when we're uh, ready to offer units at, in C31. So that's kind of a, a very quick summary of uh, the work we've been doing in the last month or so. Thank you um, very much. And we, I'm sure we have questions by the yes. board. Um, Yes, Mark, do you have your hand up? Um, well, I do have a question uh, or more of a comment, I guess. I've heard from some residents that um, they thought that they it was important to be at the actual ranking and that would make a huge difference to their immediate future, but that's just not the case, right? I would say that's not the case. Go ahead, Bob. Yeah, no, go, go ahead. Yeah, I would say that's not the case, um, Dr. Donald. What we're doing is we're just uh, doing the ranking and then we're going to give everybody the information. There really won't be a, an opportunity, I don't think, for any uh, community engagement there except to observe it and make sure that it's all um, as discussed. And just one more question. Then. Would tenants be able to go to the ranking or it doesn't seem like there's any reason, but... If somebody wanted to see it, I don't know. You know what? We have a meet, we have a follow up meeting with um, MOHCD this next week, and I'll ask them that. But I believe that what they told us is everything's virtual right now at MOHCD as far as these lottery rankings. But I will follow up with them. Okay, thank you. Question. I, I'm sorry, apologies, Director. I just wanted to to add to uh, Karen's response about uh, you know needing to be present. Uh, um, uh, or that there's anything immediate uh, that, that needs to happen after the ranking. Um, as I mentioned earlier, 
I think the important thing through this is for people to learn relatively where they stand and there are going to be a lot of other opportunities as I highlighted um, for inclusionary affordable units, be they for rent or for sale, uh, that will be coming along in the, in the next three years as well. And uh, hopefully, you know, people who are, are potentially facing the prospect of making uh, a decision um, with the C3.1 building, it gives them an opportunity to fully explore those other alternatives uh, that may come along, that may be available to them in the same time frame. So I think that's the important thing, is for people to, to know relatively uh, amongst where they stand. Um, you know, 23 units is is 15 percent of of our legacy household population. So uh, those that are are near the top of the ranking, you know, need to be thinking about some of these options and and. You know, there are options like affordable units, be they for sale for in, or inclusionary, where, you know, a lot of our residents have been here for some time and uh, they may be thinking, for instance, of retiring and, and, and that resulting in a change in their household income. So although they might not qualify for a BMR unit today, uh, they might want to look at the other decisions that they're going to be facing in their life and and perhaps if they make a decision to retire uh, and they they go to a fixed income uh, perhaps an affordable unit would be an option so anyhow it, it, it's really about um, you know providing some providing households with relative relative information so that they can really think through the, the this very complex decision uh, and have it not be a rushed, a rushed decision when a transition unit offer is made. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Okay, question. thank you. And um, Linda, you have a question, but can I note that it's 2.50 and I yes. have to yeah. close at 3. So Absolutely, and it's worth, um, this is important, uh, you know, the item. Again, for people that are watching, we put this item because Commissioner Lachandra raised this question. And Karen, thank you for the presentation. And I asked specifically before, a long time ago, for summaries, because I know that um, at every given point, this issue about notification is going to be asked. And so I'm glad to see the data that you have provided. And your presentation really captured that you're, you're using emails, dog hangers, in-person meetings, and you're also using your portal account. So let me ask you a question, and Commissioner Alexander is not here. We know that May 5th is a milestone. We need to keep having these lottos so that people know where they are. It's, we've reached that point now because this uh, process has been going on for years, so everybody needs to be on the same page. Hypothetically, on May 5th, Will they, and MHCD knows what they are doing. They do this every day in the city and county of San Francisco. Will there be any household that are going to come out on May 5th or 6th and they are going to say that they are not aware of all this process and you'll be able to look into your notes and be able to present. That's basically what this meeting is all about. That's 
and to be able to give them the opportunity before the May 5th, because that's already is gonna happen, to be able to contact you or ask questions. So please, for the sake of this meeting and for the public, that's basically what we need to do there. That by now, everybody should be apprised of this process, given all the combination of the outreach, uh, you know, processes that is being utilized. So that's what I wanna kind of hear from you. Thank you, Director Richardson. We, we also intend to do a follow-up to everybody right before um, the ranking, but as I said, it, it's it's something we're all going to be observing with MOHCD, and then shortly thereafter, we're gonna send out letters to everybody um, and just help them understand uh, what happened um, during the ranking and where their household falls. So um, again, then nothing really happens for at least a year. So. Um, we're available as TI advisors to answer questions and ask and answer questions about each person's specific opportunity. Um, and so um, I'm sure people will continue to reach out to us and, and we'll continue to track um, our outreach efforts and, and how successful they are. So, um, but again, the, the outreach efforts we've been doing are specifically to legacy residents and households on the island right now. Um, so when we're hearing that people um, aren't hearing about this, it could be that they are not legacy residents. And so we, that would be- Thank you sense. so much, Karen. And, and uh, as a legacy res uh, resident, uh, do they need to do anything? You're saying that they don't have to do anything, they're automatically um, entered into that ranking lottery by, um, uh, by the mayor's office of housing. Correct, correct. We have very clear records of um, who we understand are legacy households, and we've been reaching out to them for well over five years. So um, it's just that we're putting their name in, in the ranking and we'll get the information back out. Good. So they don't have to do anything. Right, good. Thank you um, for that. And um, are there any other, is there a public comment? Kate? There is no public comment. Okay, well, thank you for that um, presentation. I think it's important to always give the information over and over again so people are clear. And, um, and so let's hope that all goes well. Um, on May 5th, um, people will have information, you know, shortly thereafter. So, but thank you for today's meeting. And we will see you at the next Tidal Board meeting. Great. Oh. Um, so, I'm sorry, um, the other item is discussion future agenda items by directors for the sustainability mm -hmm. committee. Are there any? Mm -hmm. I don't have any. All right, we will then adjourn and have a good afternoon. Doug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, look at that dog. Very cute. <laughs> all right. Okay. Bye. See you Bye -bye. all. Bye -bye. Thank you, directors. Thank you. Thank you.